Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You may be seated. Awesome. Let me pray. Hats off to Marlies, one-handing that. Nice work, Marlies. Let me pray for us. Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that every time your word is proclaimed, Lord, that it does not come back void or empty, but it always, always, always accomplishes exactly what you want it to accomplish. And so we want to come this morning, Lord, uh, with open hearts, eyes to see, ears to hear what you're speaking to us, your people, through your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team. It is so good to be with you. The sun is shining. It's good to be here. Uh, a few things before we start. One, if my voice goes during the sermon, it's because on Tuesday, I was in here with many of you, uh, not singing. Singing would be a generous assessment of what I was doing. I was shouting, shouting worship songs off key, very loudly. And it was, wasn't that fun? Come on. Uh, if you weren't there, uh, you missed out. I don't know how else to say it. You missed it. Um, but we're going to do more of those in the future. And so come uh, to our worship nights. Um, it was so much fun. And so if my voice goes mid-sermon, we'll just sing. And that'll be good. Second thing, this sermon is part one of a two-part sermon. You'll notice if you're tracking with us as we go through 1 Corinthians uh, that we're going through verse by verse through the book. Last week we ended at verse 16. Uh, we didn't start reading this week at verse 17. Instead, we picked it up at verse 23. And so we're actually going to do this in two parts as we look at the Lord's Supper. This week, we're going to consider uh, the nature of the Lord's Supper. Like, what are we talking about when we're talking about, like, these things? Like, like what's happening at the Lord's Supper? And then next week, Heath is going to bring us into sort of the, the horizontal or the communal aspect of the Lord's Supper. And we'll consider that together in Corinth and then in our day. This week, though, the nature of the Lord's Supper. See, if we get it wrong, vertically, if we miss what's happening vertically with the Lord's Supper between us and God, then it does not matter what we say horizontally or socially. What does this mean for the church? Who cares if we do not first know what it means with our relationship with the Lord as Jesus gave us this supper? See, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, I don't know all of you. I know many of you. I don't know all of you. But it's likely that we come this morning with a whole bunch of misunderstandings, isn't it? Maybe this is your first time in a church. You know, in the early church, one of the misunderstandings that was happening was that the pagans thought the Christians were getting together and eating people. That's what they thought the Lord's Supper was. They thought it was cannibalism, a cannibalistic meal. Let me assure you it's not happening this morning. You can, you can, you're safe. Or maybe you come from a church tradition where the Lord's Supper is quite mysterious, right? Maybe even a bit magical. Done by special men in special clothes behind a special curtain. Or, or maybe more likely, you grew up in a church that was reacting against this other more magical view. And so you, you took that big 
And this is, I'm dating myself. He took that big metal plate, you know what I'm talking about? And it had all those holes in it. And it was a custom made for churches. And I bet they're very expensive. Uh, and it had those little thimbles of Welch's in it. You know what I'm talking about? And you'd, you'd pass this around and they would instruct you to think about Jesus as you drank that Welch's and you're like, you know, puckering your lips from the sourness of it and the sugar of it. Maybe that's how you come to the Lord's Supper. We're asking this morning, what is the Lord's Supper? Why is it significant? And what role does it play, remembering our context in 1 Corinthians, in our God-glorifying worship? Why does it matter? If you're taking notes, this is how we're going to walk through our text this morning. First, the First Supper. Second, the Lord's Supper. And then third, the Last Supper. The First Supper, the Lord's Supper. I worked very hard on these points. And the Last Supper. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you, uh, open them, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 23. If you don't have a Bible at all, we have Bibles at the back. Take them, keep them. It's our gift to you, okay? So Bible's open. This is what Paul writes. He says this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Stop there. The story of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, from, from beginning to end, is really a story of meals, of meals. And to understand the power and meaning of the meal, which is to be eaten when the Corinthians gather for worship, Paul asks that we look back. We look back. He said, this, this meal, this Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, he says, I didn't make it up. I got it from the teachings of the apostles who received it from Christ himself. See, where we need to begin this morning, and it's not sexy and it's not exciting, is not with like application right away, but with in fact a history lesson. So if you're a history buff, we're coming for you. If you can't be interested, it's important, I swear. I want us to see that Jesus, in giving this meal to his disciples, and his disciples giving it to Paul, is referencing or building off of the first supper, a supper that predated Jesus' meal by more than a thousand years. Let me show you this. If you go in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, Genesis, Exodus. If you go in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, in Exodus we find that before God's people were enslaved to the Romans, before they were enslaved to the Romans, as they were in Jesus' day and Paul's day, God's people were under Egyptian rule. And it says in Exodus 1, that their domination was bitter. Bitter, it says. We read that the Egyptians made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. We continue to read, however, in verse, sorry, chapter 2 of Exodus this. That during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And what a beautiful verse. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Perhaps we could better translate that last line. God looked on his people and he made himself known to them. 
The rest of the book of Exodus is a story of God making himself known to his people. If you keep on reading, God makes himself known to an Egyptian exile, a Hebrew named Moses, in a burning bush. He reveals himself to him. You keep on reading even further. Moses goes as the mouthpiece to Egypt. And there, he announces the deliverance of his people. And, and Pharaoh repeatedly says, no. And so plagues repeatedly come upon Egypt, not only affecting the people, but attacking the, the, the pantheon of gods that the Egyptians had. And the message was clear. God sees his people, God knows his people, and he's going to act on behalf of his people. Yahweh is superior to all other gods. Until finally, we come to the final plague. When we are told the Lord would go out among the Egyptians, this is in chapter 11, and every firstborn, both cattle and child, in the land of Egypt shall die. See, what will mean ruin and judgment for the Egyptians will mean salvation for God's people. This final plague will lead to their deliverance. And to mark this new beginning, this new start, the Lord gives them a new meal, a supper, the first supper, called the Passover. And here's how it worked. The evening would begin with the death of a lamb, a lamb. The blood of the lamb would be spread on the doorposts that they're instructed to do this. And the Lord would come to judge the Egyptians. He would pass over the homes covered by the blood of the lamb and so spare his people. The people then, after doing this, were to sit down for the Passover meal. They were told to eat their meal with their, their belts fastened, their sandals on their feet, their staff in their hand. N not because God is an introvert who hates relaxed, drawn-out dinner parties, no, but because they were to eat in faith that what God said he would do, he would in fact do. And they would be leaving Egypt shortly. And so it says in chapter 12 of Exodus that they did all the Lord commanded. Lambs were slaughtered, doorposts were painted red, meat was roasted, and with it the people ate bread without yeast, giving it no time to rise, and bitter herbs to remind them of their bitter lives in slavery. And on that night, at, at midnight it says, the Lord did what he said he would. He struck down the firstborns of, and Israel was rescued. Their cries heard, their slavery ended. God made himself, just as he said, known to them. So when we come to the Gospels, and we come to Jesus and to his ministry, and we read that Jesus enters Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal, we think we know what's going to happen, don't we? It's been happening for a thousand years. His disciples think they know what's going to happen, right? Our people have been doing it for over a thousand years. But in that upper room, in the last week of his earthly life, Jesus does something completely unexpected. And what he does is really this. He shows us how this first supper was merely a shadow or a sign pointing to the Lord's Supper. We should look at that next. This is point two. Paul tells us now what happened at the Lord's Supper. Look at 1 Corinthians 11 again, verses 23 to 25. Paul says this. 
For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Jesus takes these things, this bread and this wine, things that are ripe with meaning for the disciples, for all Jewish people, even to this day, and he tells us what they are really about. He says, the bread, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The wine, he says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Imagine for a moment, you had a sacred tradition as a family. Think of it now. Maybe it's opening pajamas on Christmas Eve. Maybe it's playing board games every Sunday afternoon. Maybe it's doing this one thing on this one day with these group of people to, to, to celebrate that one thing. There are these sacred traditions that we have that are infused with meaning. And imagine if I came into right the middle of those events and I said, this celebration, it's about me. <laughs> Jake, it's not about you. <laughs> What would you do, right? You'd ask me to leave. You'd find a church whose pastor wasn't a narcissist. <laughs> You'd think that's crazy, wouldn't you? Multiply the horror and disdain in that moment over thousands of years. Multiply that shock and that offense, not just to one family, but an entire nation. Who does Jesus think he is? That's the question right now. Who does Jesus think he is? Who do you think Jesus is? If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, isn't it clear? Isn't it obvious? Don't we know? Jesus, he's saying, is the truer and better Passover lamb. In Egypt, Israel is told that the lamb must be without blemish, must be perfect. This sacrifice that would mean their salvation must be flawless. And so it is with us. Jesus comes, he takes on full humanity, yet he lives without blemish. Jesus, unlike you and me, because I know the week I lived, Jesus, unlike you and me, lives with perfect obedience to the Father. Jesus becomes our sacrificial lamb. The one who, in shedding his blood, causes the wrath of the Father to pass over us, and instead of death, we find life. Friends, the blood of Jesus shed on the cross is painted on the doorposts of the souls of all who trust in Jesus. Romans 3 tells us this, for all, not some, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which is big, fancy Bible word for uh, wrath-bearing sacrifice. Our Passover lamb, who God put forward as our Passover lamb by his blood to be received by faith. 
You know, there's a reason we will sing for all of eternity in God's kingdom this song. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So Christ City, let's not overcomplicate the meal. Jesus, the, the truer and better Passover lamb, shed his blood, Paul says, not for them, not for someone else, but for you. So Liam, Christ shed his blood for you. And Ian, Christ shed his blood for you. And Carly for you. Some of you are like, he's going to say my name. <laughs> we should feel the weight of what Paul's saying here. He says, for you. Christ shed his blood for you. You who I don't know, you who just wandered in here this morning, you who came on the arm of a friend, Christ shed his blood, Paul says, the Bible says, God says, for you. And he did this once and for all, the Bible tells us. We don't bring forward that sacrifice anew each time as we celebrate the Lord's table. The Bible says once and for all. In short, there is no hocus pocus happening here this morning. No, no magic happening at the table in front of me. In fact, it's, it's funny slash not funny to be reminded that the term hocus pocus has its origins in the Latin blessing of the Catholic Mass, right? Hoc est corpus meum, or this is my body. So we reject then unequivocally a view of the supper as something magical, in, in some points in Christian history, uh, the bread and the wine would be paraded through the streets as if Christ himself had come because indeed they believed he had. People would bow to, to the bread and to the wine. At other times, people would, would receive the, the, the wafer at mass and then go home and spit that wafer out onto their field, hoping that Christ would bless their crop. Or they would spit it onto the field of their neighbor, hoping that Christ would judge them. And they would roll over dead. Don't know how that works, but apparently it does. See, to view the supper in this way, it is pure and simply uh, idolatry. It is to make the created thing a, a creator. It is to take what God has given us and elevate it to a God-like status. And, and, and we say no, no. Jesus is the truer and better once and for all Passover lamb. And because he is, Paul tells us, Jesus brought us into the truer and better covenant. Jesus said, Paul received, and now we, along with the Corinthians, are to be reminded every time we eat this meal, the words of Christ in verse 25. Look with me. Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, the language of covenant is, is foreign to us. It's strange, right? But it's crucial to understanding the story of the Bible. Our God is a God who throughout history has made covenants with his people. In the Bible, covenants are these, these voluntary relationships, these oath agreements that are characterized by faithfulness and loyalty and love. To keep them was to receive blessing. To, to fail to keep them was to receive curses. These are covenants. See, the central event 
of God's relationship with Israel was their rescue from Egyptian slavery. So over and over again, if you've read your Old Testament, you know this, Israel is called to remember, remember the Exodus event. This is the central event in this covenant. Remember what God has done. Remember how God has acted on your behalf. Remember the miracles that God worked for you. Remember, remember, over and over, remember. So we find the Exodus story scattered in the prophets, in the Psalms, in other historical books. And just as the Exodus from Egypt was the central covenant event for Israel, see, we have been ushered into a new and better covenant with a new central event. And our exodus, our defining event, is not Egypt, but Calvary, where Jesus was crucified. And if this sounds theological and abstract for you, let me bring this down to a pastoral level, to, to our level for just a moment. Maybe you, you came in this morning asking, how do you know God is for us? How do you know he loves us? You're talking really confidently up there, even shouting a little bit. It's a bit uncomfortable. How do you know that he loves us? How do you know that he's forgiven our sin? How do we know we have all we need to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil? How do we know Jesus is coming back again? Or maybe your questions aren't that big. Maybe they're more like this. How do we know we can entrust our children to this God? How do we know Jesus will be enough in our deep loneliness, our deep depression, our never-ending anxiety? Jake, how, how do you know all this? Jesus says, Paul says, and the Lord's Supper says to us today, take, eat, remember what God has done in sending his son to the cross. The cross is how we know. See, when Jesus says in verse 25 that we are to eat and drink in remembrance of me, he's talking about more than just sort of recollecting a past event. Remembrance is more than just thinking, oh yeah, Jesus did that. No, as one commentator put it, to remember God is to engage in worship, trust, and obedience. Just as to forget God is to turn one's back on him, failure to remember is not absent-mindedness, but unfaithfulness to the covenant and disobedience. See, to remember is to see ourselves not merely as people who have inherited a message or all intellectually ascend to a past historical event, but in the Jewish conception of remember, to remember is to see yourself as an active and ongoing participant in this story. You're saying Israel's story is my story. Jesus' story is my story. Paul's story, Corinth's story. It's all my story. And I'm participating in it. Consider another example. Before our kids leave for school, they hate this so much. We don't always do this, but occasionally we'll sort of, you know, gently grab our children and we'll look them in the face and say something like, remember, remember who you are. Now, that's not because we're afraid that our kids will run to different adults at pickup time. Mommy, daddy. Right. What are we doing in that moment? 
Why are we saying, remember who you are? To remember you belong to a family is to choose to bring honor and not shame to the things you do. To, to remember you belong to a loving father and mother is to provide your children with a shield of defense when other people and other ideas tempt them to belong to them. To remember is also to hope for the future. I know who my dad or my mom is, and so I know that they'll do this as I go forward. I ate yesterday, I'll probably eat tomorrow. To remember is to invoke all these things. See, whether you had a mom or a dad who did this or not, and I know many of you did not, Jesus, each time you receive his invitation to come to the table, is saying to you, remember, remember, remember who you are. I've made a covenant with you. Your sins are forgiven, and so stop trying to justify yourself in every other arena, in every other place. The Father whispers to us in the bread and the wine, remember you belong to me. And so live like my children. In remembering the table, we hear our Savior say, your past is forgiven and I am with you in your present and your future is secure. Remember, remember. See, Jesus, the true and better Passover lamb, brings us into the truer and better covenant once and for all, proving that he is the truer and better exodus. If you know the story of Israel, you know it's not like that things are up and to the right from here. It's not like that. If you know their story, you know that in the book of Numbers, they will need a, a, another exodus. Except instead of 10 plagues this time, they will look like 10 commandments for their deliverance and 10 separate trials for their deliverance. The people rebel, and this time they are captive to their own sin. All of this, all of this, reminding us of the truth this morning that we know all too well that the greatest threats to true freedom, it seems, do not come from external oppression, but from within. Say it again. Greatest threats to true freedom, it seems, do not come from external oppression, but from within. So, so who is the table for? Who, who is this for? Who is the Lord's Supper for? Who, who can eat of it? Only those who acknowledge that outside of faith in Jesus, we are enslaved to our sin, enslaved to the devil, unable to resist worldly forces, and ultimately enslaved to death itself. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to be so clear to you because I think clarity is one of the ways that we can love people. I want to be so clear to you. You are invited to join us in almost every part of our gathering this morning. You are invited to sing with us, and I hope you do. You are welcome to join us in prayer. I hope you do. You're welcome to listen with us under God's word, and should you choose, you're even welcome to give this morning. But there is one part of our time this morning that is not for you. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. Why? Because the Lord's Supper proclaims loud and clear, repent of your sins, believe the gospel, and come to Christ. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, this little cup right here, believe it or not, as awful as it tastes, is shouting to you, repent of your sins, 
Believe the gospel and come to Christ. Repent of your sins. Believe the gospel and come to Christ. Today is the day. And this is not to say only the supper's messages to unbelievers, but to believers as well. You know, Heath will show us next week. Look at verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writes there, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So Christian, as you come to the table this morning, come with assurance. Christ has died for you. But do not come to the table thoughtlessly. The Lord's Supper is a gracious gift to us for keeping our accounts short as a church. To move us to regular confession, both to God and to one another. And to taste each week that our sins have been forgiven. We come thoughtfully, because as Paul has said already earlier in this letter, the cup of blessing that we bless, he wrote, is it not participation? It's where this word communion comes from. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? In other words, our eating the bread and drinking the cup points to our spiritual union with Jesus. This is the other ditch we must avoid. See, some of us in reacting or rejecting the magical or the superstitious view of the table have instead sort of enforced on the table a materialistic view. That it's just a cup. Just bread. But 1 Corinthians 10 tells us otherwise. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a fellowship, a communing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Christ is truly spiritually present at our table. How it works, I do not know. I don't know. But what is clear is that Christ promises to be present with us at this table until we are present with him at his heavenly table. First supper, Lord's Supper, now the last supper. If you're very confused right now, thinking, Jake, I know what the Last Supper is. It's this painting from Leonardo da Vinci. And that's the Lord's Supper. I want to suggest to you, and this is borderline blasphemy, but I think Leonardo da Vinci was, was better with a brush than with a Bible. I'm just going to say that, okay? And if you're a big da Vinci fan, come at me later. But, but in labeling this or entitling this the Last Supper, I, I think da Vinci is missing the point. See, see, what did Paul say? What did the words of Christ that Paul received say? For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is coming another meal. Another meal where Jesus will sit down with his disciples. There is coming another meal where bread and wine like we've never tasted or drank of before will be eaten and drunk. There is coming another meal when those beloved of Christ will lean into his bosom. In fact, this meal is, is a placeholder, an, an appetizer for the feast to come. See, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 26, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
On that day, the, the last supper will go by a different name. John tells us, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you see it, Christ City? From Exodus to Matthew to Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It has always been the loving plan of our Heavenly Father that the lamb that was slain in the Egyptian home would point to the lamb killed on the cross, would be the one and the same lamb who would be the object of worship on the final day. As the great multitude cries out in Revelation 19, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Christ City, as we end, hear these words. You are that bride. So when you partake in the table today, this is the pronouncement of your fidelity, your, your faithfulness to your bridegroom who is Christ. Paul says your coming forward is a proclamation it's a proclamation to, to the heavenly creatures and powers. It's a proclamation to the watching church. It's a proclamation to your neighbors, this city, this, these co-workers, your family and strangers. It's a proclamation that you belong to Christ. His body and blood, his death alone has set you free and you are looking forward to a better meal, a heavenly meal on the day we drink the fruit of the vine in our Father's kingdom. I don't know about you, but I cannot wait for that meal. Let's pray together. So Father, we ask that you would search our hearts now by your Holy Spirit, that as the psalmist prays, you would expose and reveal any grievous way in us, any ways that we've ignored, rejected, even hated your lordship over us this week. We confess you now as Lord, Lord of the church and Lord over us as individuals. Lord, I pray that after examining our hearts, we would come to the table with the assurance that Christ has indeed won for us our salvation, that nothing can change that, that we're secure in him. Would that proclamation ring loud and clear? We pray these things in his name. Amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church, East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christitychurch.ca.